Hi, GapFest listeners. This is our live show that we recorded on Wednesday night. That was before the big affirmative action decision came down from the Supreme Court on Thursday morning. If you want analysis on that case, check out the Slate site and the Amicus podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest. June 29th, 2023, the live in Washington, D.C. edition. I am... I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm staring at a huge and beautiful crowd at the Sixth and I Historic Synagogue in downtown Washington, D.C. A bigger crowd, I would note, than Ron DeSantis can get in New Hampshire. <laughs> and probably, probably not so angry. Uh, to my far left, the only gentleman left in America. <laughs> a journalist whose questions are as tough as his heart is tender. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. Hello, John. That was, that was very sweet, David. You've disarmed me. Yeah. Um, well, with the Supreme Court, uh, you can easily rearm. No problem. To John's right, of course, is the unofficial, unofficial 10th Justice of the Supreme Court the legal mind so brilliant that three billionaires are drawing straws right now to see which one of them gets to fly her back in a private jet to New Haven tonight. <laughs> Emily Bazelon of the New York yeah. Times Magazine and Yale. <laughs> this week on the Gap Fest, we will talk to the most exciting new Democratic politician in the country, Maryland's own governor, Wes Moore. <laughs> then... What the heck is going on with the Supreme Court? Are they all corrupt? Is John Roberts now a liberal? Then the Republican race for president is looking pretty weird, and John will explain whether Trump is as strong as he seems and if the other candidates are as weak. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Westmore has held elected office for less than a year, but he is already being touted as one of the most promising Democratic politicians in the country, part of the new generation that the party is going to need in the post-Biden era. Moore is a combat veteran. He's a banker and an entrepreneur. He was a nonprofit CEO. He's an extremely best-selling author. And he's also dismayingly much younger than we are, yet he is already the governor of Maryland. Please welcome Governor Westmore to the gathering. This is great. I'm so excited. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys, how y'all doing? So, Governor, uh, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. You, you played football, but I'm going to start with a softball. So you... Uh, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this, is your first, this is your first elected office. After you've had a long and really varied professional career, you've done a lot of different things. So how is being governor worse or better than the other jobs you've had, and how is it different? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, first, I'm, I'm, I'm literally the governor of the best state in this country. Um, and, um, and I mean that with all my heart. And, you know, and I, and I think about this job. I love this job. When people ask me, they're like, you know, so what made you want to get into politics? And I was like, I didn't. I wanted to be governor. Um, <laughs> because governor is such a 
unique role because you really do get to set the agenda. You know, it's not just about the budget, it's about the bully pulpit. It's about how exactly can you kind of set the direction that you want the state to, to move in. And, and I remember when I was thinking about one of, the, one of the moments that I actually really thought about running for governor, I was running one of the largest uh, poverty fighting organizations in the country. And we were working for six months to get a former governor to make an adjustment on the child tax credit. Because the child tax credit is just proven to be one of the most effective ways of actually fighting child poverty. And, uh, and we were saying this is what you should do on a statewide level. I literally said you should, you should put this in the state of the state. I literally wrote, this, wrote the line that he should have included in the state of the state. And I get an advanced copy of it, and there's no mention of the child tax credit, and there's no mention of child poverty in the state of the state. So I'm a little upset. I call him my head of public policy, and I'm, and I'm ranting. And then when I finally took a breath to pause, he said to me, he said, we worked for six months to try to get them to include a line in the speech. But what if you could write the whole speech? And that was the point, right? And then so two weeks after I was inaugurated as the 63rd governor of the state of Maryland, I gave my first state of the state address and we talked about how we were gonna make a full frontal bipartisan attack on child poverty, the greatest in the state's history, and that's exactly what we've done. Fighting poverty is really important. You are very committed to it. It is not ordinarily the first line in becoming a candidate who crosses party lines, who's seen as being having bipartisan appeal. It's seen often as treated often as being uh, more of an appeal to a kind of niche set of liberals. How do you address that? How do you articulate a vision that moves beyond Democrats, something I think you've talked about trying to learn from Deval Patrick, but also staying true to these values, which obviously are core to your personal and political self? You know, I, I think that it, it really is consistent with, with how we campaign in the first place. But we ended up winning with the largest margin in 40 years and with more individual votes than anyone who'd ever run for governor in the history of the state of Maryland. But, but the thing that I would say is this, we didn't do that because we just won Democrats. We won independents, we won a good chunk of Republicans, and really part of that's the reason because we went everywhere. We went all over the state, and so when we're talking about child poverty, when we're talking about these issues, when we talked about where this needs to be a state where we leave no one behind, and we were talking about how child poverty impacts people, when people said, well, how does poverty show itself? And I said, in every way, it shows itself in the air people are breathing, and the water they're drinking, and the schools they're attending, and the way they're policed. We would go out into Western Maryland and the Eastern Shore, and they would look back and say, that's me too. And I would say, that's exactly right. This is you too. And so when we put together, a, a, you know, we, we introduced 10 bills in, our, in my first legislative session. We went 10 for 10 on our bills and passed all of them bipartisan. Both Democrat and Republicans voted for all of our bills. And we focused on things like child poverty because we were showing that the issues that we are speaking about, these are not urban, suburban, rural. These are issues that we are dealing with as a state collectively. So the only way we're going to be able to address it as a state is collectively. So I think we've been able to show that you can, uh, if you're willing to make the case, if you're willing to go everywhere, if you're willing to be data-driven and heart-led, you're going to go ahead and translate into communities that oftentimes you might initially think 
won't be with you, but they'll be your loudest cheerleaders to go and get the work done once you, once you make your case. Governor, you've had to set the heading for organizations. How do you set the heading as a governor? They used to say about Ronald Reagan that if you didn't talk to President Reagan for six months, you knew what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to cut regulations, cut taxes, and fight the commies if you worked for him. Yeah. So if somebody who works for you doesn't get a chance to talk to you, yeah. what are the three things they know Governor Moore's sent me off to do? Um, the North Star that we really have for, for our administration, uh, it really is focusing on how you're creating pathways for work, wages, and wealth for all individuals in our state and not just some. And, you know, if you look at how we've been able to lead for the first six months, it really is being able to look at those things through those three lenses. So if you're talking about work, it's the reason we focus on things like making historic investments in job training programs and job reskilling programs. And, and while we have some of the best four-year colleges in, in the country, in the state of Maryland, we are ending this myth that everybody and every child needs to attend one of them in order to be successful economically for their life. When we're talking about things like work, it means being able to remove these arbitrary barriers that particularly for people like returning citizens and those who are coming home, removing the arbitrary barriers that in many, in many ways is making every sentence a life sentence. When we're talking about wages, it's the reason that we pushed on and said that in the state of Maryland, in our first 90 days, we got Maryland to a $15 minimum wage because gone should be the days when we have people who are working jobs. You know, gone should be the days when people are working jobs, and in some cases, multiple jobs, and still living at or below a poverty line. Mm -hmm. And then we focus on wealth, about how, are you, how do you have the ability to pass something off to your children besides debt? How can we focus on people who can earn more than they owe? How are we addressing issues like the historical redlining of, of, of predominantly black neighborhoods? How are we focusing on things like home ownership and providing supports for first-time homebuyers? And so if you focus on this lens of work, wages, and wealth, through a rubric as we did during a campaign, which has become not just a mantra, but a, a value statement, which is leave no one behind. If you focus on the idea of leave no one behind in your policies, and you know that in the lens of the work that you're doing, that has been your hallmark, then you know you're doing right by what we're asking you to do in this administration. So that was, that was really well said, Governor. I think you've articulated a lot of really specific policy measures. One of the things that so disturbs me, and I'm sure it disturbs you, is, is obviously politicians, when they are speaking, they talk about that we're not a red America and a blue America, to use Barack Obama's, we're one, we're one America. Yeah. Um, but the America we're living in feels so divided and so, it's so toxic. You, you ran uh, and you crushed in the governor's race, an extremely right-wing candidate. People are questioning the very humanity of people who have political beliefs that are contrary to theirs. If you believe we're a one America, but do you believe we're one America, oh, first yeah. of all? But how do, we, how do we start to bridge the truly terrible chasm, which is getting wider and wider and wider every day? Yeah. You know, I, uh, when I first started uh, running, and, and you're right, we had a candidate who we ran against, um, who would consistently talk about patriotism. And I let him know how bothersome it was because I said, you know, I've seen patriotism up close and personal. Where, you know, I had, I had the honor, I, le I led soldiers in combat with the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, and I come from a family of patriots because I come from a family of ministers and teachers and operating engineers and postal workers and people who built this country with their hands. 
And so I refuse to be lectured by someone about patriotism whose defini definition of patriotism was putting on a baseball cap and asking, someone to join, asking people to join him on January 6th. That's not patriotism. That patriotism, patriotism means being willing to sacrifice and being willing to serve the people next to you and your neighbors. And you cannot claim, you cannot claim that you love this country when you hate half of the people in it. And so, and so we took this head on in the state of Maryland where, where I said, I want this to be the state that serves. Where not only, was, not only did we call on people to enter into the workforce and, and serve in different ways, be able to serve their neighbors, we also made Maryland the first state in this country that now has a service year option for our high school graduates. And, and so our high school graduates, when they complete school, they have the option now of serving the state of Maryland in whatever way they want to do. They can serve in the environment, they can serve in higher ed, they can serve veterans, they can serve older adults, it's their choice. And we did it for three reasons. One is I'm a big believer in experiential learning. Give people an opportunity to find something that makes their heart beat a little bit faster and then let them go after it. The second reason I believe that we need to provide an earned financial cushion for young people as they're entering into adult life. But the third reason, it's because service is sticky and service will save us. And I know I saw it on the campaign trail where I had people who I served with in Afghanistan who came and campaigned for our campaign. Many of them were not Marylanders. Many of them were not Democrats. Right. But they were literally coming and knocking on doors and simply saying, let me tell you about the guy that I served with. That if we really care about addressing this political vitriol and this political divide, let's ask each other to get to know each other again. And if we serve together, Service will save us. I really love this Maryland gap year because another reason for this is that some kids are not ready to go to college two year, four year, right. whatever, when they're 18, and this recognizes that. Um, and I wasn't. I mean, it's, it's a not, I, I, I first went to a two year college, right? I got an associate's degree. The ring that I actually wear is from my two year college. And then I, and I joined the army when I was 17 years old. So, wow. you know, so I, I tell people that the non-traditional path actually works out for some folks. <laughs> and you can show that. Yeah. So that, do you want to Can I jump in? What did you learn? What did you not know? And what did you learn in that period? During, during when I was in two years college? Well, you, yeah. What weren't you ready for? And what did you learn that, that you would say, you know, it was particularly young men, yeah. having been w one of these slow starters myself, uh, um, what did you learn? What did, what did you learn during that period? Uh, well, one, I learned college is really expensive. And so <laughs> the fact that the army was going to help me out with it, it was great. Um, you know, I, I think though, one of the things that I, that I learned, um, is that I was more prepared than I thought. And I think prepared for can then be filled in with however you want to fill it in with, whether it was prepared for higher ed, prepared for a workforce, prepared to enter into the world, is that having that, having that foundation, having that basis, having that time to really discover who you are and the thing that you're good at was something that I think was really important. You know, when you, when you look at the way we look at traditional, uh, traditional education, and again, it's the reason that we are pushing so hard in the state of Maryland to make sure that traditional opportunities that, are not, that have not historically been available to just a person with just a high school degree, 
that we are going to open these opportunities up. Because there are more people that if we can just focus on a measure of preparedness and give them an opportunity to find that path, they are going to find it. And they're going to find a way to be able to get there. But if we are simply saying that there's only one path that determines success, we're going to make some real errors. I mean, I think it was, you know, Einstein said a quote, if you tell a fish that the definition of genius is climbing a tree, that fish will always think it's dumb. And so we have to get rid of this idea that there's only be one exclusive path for our young people to follow. And I think that is something that I, I learned, that I was more prepared for the world than I thought I was because my aperture and my understanding of what incorporated the world was changing. Um, so you wrote an excellent book called The Other Wes Moore, and there's a passage in it where you say, one of us is free and has experienced things that he never even knew to dream of as a kid. That's you. And the other will spend every day until his death behind bars. The chilling truth is that his story could have been mine, and the tragedy is that my story could have been his. Yeah. And I wonder, so you're balancing here these two different realities. It is possible to overcome and surmount and, you know, be incredibly successful, kind of no matter what barriers you start with. But you're also recognizing that doesn't happen for a lot of people. Right. And I wonder how you keep thinking and talking about that, both standing for this possibility of shining success, but also recognizing how hard it is for so many people. Yeah. And, 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 and the fact that those, those barriers are real. You know, and, and, and this is when, when, when you'll hear people talk about uh, these, these disparities and these discrepancies that they're somehow make-believe, that they're made up. Um, it's just, I, I, I don't understand how people, and particularly people who are going to try to sell us on an argument that they're, they, are, they have this story of upliftment, but then turn around and tell us that there was nothing to overcome. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, the reality is, is that stories like mine and journeys like mine where I was a kid, I mean, I, I watched my father die in front of me when I was three years old. I, I, I watched my mother not get her first job that gave her benefits until I was 14. I watched how, I mean, I was 11 years old when I felt handcuffs on my wrists. And I also watched how now I'm standing there as the 63rd governor of the state of Maryland, the first African-American elected governor uh, in the history of the state. And people, can, people will sit there and say, well, it just shows that anything is possible. The challenge of that and the challenge of looking at the story of the exception and somehow thinking that that is a victory in and of itself is that there is a, there is a minimizing of the fact that I was lucky enough, lucky enough to have people who were willing to see something that I did not yet see. I was lucky enough to have people in my life who were willing to hold my dreams up long enough to wait for my shoulders to become broad enough that I no longer need their help to hold my dreams up. Now I can do it on my own. But that wasn't always the case. And when you think about it in, in that context, the reason that we're working on the issues that we're working on is luck should not be a prerequisite to success. Especially the luck of birth. That's right. And, 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 we, and we will watch sometimes people who did not end up in the right place and somehow blame them. Yes. When we are having people who are coming up in societies and, can, and coming up in an existence that from birth is already helping to determine where they are going to end up in life. And that is not enough 
for a society that we all should fundamentally believe in and work for, that is a land of opportunity. But if we believe in that truly, then we've got to make the chances for opportunities real and not just continue to use it as a talking point. Governor, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but the Democratic Party has had some really old leaders recently. <laughs> and there is a um, very old president running for re-election. I wonder if it worries you to have President Biden leading the ticket and what, what you think, uh, what benefits you think that brings to the party to have somebody who's that senior and that veteran and also what, what risks it poses for the party. Here's, here's what I know, uh, that the numbers don't lie. Uh, and people can say, well, you know, age is a number, but I say, yeah, but so are results. And sh keep on showing me these kind of results. Keep on showing me these type of results. And the thing that I know is when I, look at, when I look at the Biden administration, I have the partner that I need in Washington because we have a partner that actually sees us. We have a partner that's willing to invest in us. We have a partner that's actually making all the big aspirations and the big goals that I've laid out as governor that's making them real. So when I say that this is going to be Maryland's decade, we're already showing in our first six months that I mean that. But I know it's partially because we've got the right partner that we need in Washington, D.C. right now. Let me ask you about education. When the national education assessment numbers came out um, since the last measurement across the United States, down four points in readings. I, reading, I think, nine points in math. Compared to 10 years ago, it's down even further. So how much of an emergency is the drop-in scores that were a result of COVID, which piles on top of what was already an emergency in education beforehand? Yeah. And what's your solution for that? Is that, I mean, when I hear you talk about incarceration, um, I mean, your Safe Summers initiative is dealing with the problem, with the challenges of the moment, but some people could say, well, the way you deal with that challenge is have universal pre-K. In other words, you start way back earlier in the life yeah. of a resident of your state. So where do you, give me your sense of the emergency in education, and where is your entry point to solve it with the most impact in the limited time you have? Yeah, it's, um, so the, the, the crisis is real. I think the problem is we haven't treated it as such. You know, the, and the only way you're going to deal with a fundamental breakdown is a fundamental buildup. And we have to appreciate the fact that these challenges that we are facing, that, that our children are facing, um, they are dire and they really do require emergency circumstances. And so that means all the various elements that we know and are proven to work, we have to be able to invest in and support. You know, as a leader, I am very data driven. And I know that the data continues to show that we've got to start earlier for our children. That 80% of brain development happens in a child by the time that child is five years old. So why we have children starting school at five makes absolutely no sense. We've gotta make sure that we're starting earlier and having pre-K for every child in need. We've gotta make sure, we've gotta make sure that we're doing a better job of being able to recruit educators and specifically educators of color inside of our classrooms. You know, it's the reason that, it's the reason that, you know, that one of the bills that we introduced and got passed bipartisan 
was something called the Teacher Shortage Act of 2023, which was incentivizing teachers not just to not just to come but to stay inside of our classroom, addressing this dire teacher shortage that we continue to see inside of the state of Maryland. It's a reason that we made historic investments in things like community schools and P-TECH platforms, which is combining the private sector is now working with K-12 systems and also and also community colleges. So you now have students who are finishing high school with a high school degree, an associate's degree, and a job offer. Because you now have the private sector that's actually involved in the curriculum. Because right now in the state of Maryland, we have two available jobs for every single person filing for unemployment. And people say, well, how does that make sense? It makes sense because we actually have a dynamic economy. We're just not preparing our students to participate in it. And so it means taking all of the various aspects that we know are gonna be crucial and necessary. Being able to support on housing insecurity, food insecurity, and that the reason that we are not gonna to get to a solution with a one-shot one decision is because it wasn't one thing that got us in this problem in the first place. That we are dealing with this cascading effect of generational challenge, generational poverty, and generational inequity. And so the only way we're going to address that is being able to have a all of the above approach when it comes for us to being able to deal with it. Governor Westmore, since you became governor, weed is legal and the Orioles are winning. So <laughs> congratulations. And Thanks. we're just getting started. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Gap Fest. Thank you so much. Good job, Maryland. Nice job voting. <laughs> Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And this week's bonus segment will be questions from our audience here at Sixth and I. To become a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Emily. The Supreme Court. I've heard of it. It's in the home stretch. It's in the home stretch, the month long window before the billionaire's private jets swoop in and carry them off to yachts and mountain resorts. Uh, and they're just issuing big decisions every day. So we're waiting for the ruling that will bar affirmative action in higher education. Maybe tomorrow. Continue. Okay. This week, we had the resounding decision in Harper versus Moore, which rejected the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. And this follows another case where the conservative judges teamed with the three liberals to protect the Voting Rights Act or part of the Voting Rights Act. So let's start with Harper versus Moore. Why, what was the ruling? Why is it significant? The ruling is that the elections clause in the Constitution does not give exclusive and independent authority to state legislatures to set the rules concerning federal elections. That was sort of an obvious proposition until a few years ago and this idea of this theory that there's an independent state legislature power in the Constitution, which means that only the legislature in state government can make any decisions about election law. And the genesis of this is the 2020 election. Pennsylvania, in particular, had these questions about whether mail-in ballots that technically violated the statute could be counted, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court invoked the Pennsylvania Constitution to count some ballots. And um, former President Trump and allies said this was wrong, and then this led to this whole idea of, like, should the Pennsylvania court be making these decisions in the first place? And it seemed when the court took, uh, took this current case from North Carolina, like, well, why would they take the case if they weren't trying to shake up law in some way? And in the end, they issued a decision that's all about stabilizing the status quo and really cutting off one important avenue for people who want to gin up conspiracy theories about the election. And so it was important for that reason. It was a six to three decision. Um, it does leave open the, a window into, the, into federal court review of state court decisions in a way that uh, there's been, I think, an interesting divide about how important that part of the decision is. I do have to say one technical irritating thing, which is that part of the dispute... That's the love language of our listeners. Exactly. They're so excited for this. Exciting. So one of the key disputes is whether this case was moot. Right, whether the court should not actually be rendering any decision at all, because when they took the case, there was one decision from a more um, democratically or more liberal-oriented North Carolina Supreme Court about the redistricting maps in North Carolina. And then the voters of North Carolina elected a more conservative, Republican-oriented set of justices who reversed the earlier ruling. And so why would the Supreme Court be rendering a decision about this first ruling when it had been reversed? And there's a line in the news coverage in the New York Times this week that says that the Supreme Court's decision will have no impact on North Carolina's maps. That's what mootness is. You're supposed to be able to show that when a court does something, it has some effect. And one of the main points in Clarence Thomas's dissent, and he's dissenting for himself and Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch, is this case is moot. And I got to say, for that part, I, I personally was completely on board with their argument. And I think, look, what was going on here was that 
The court took this case when it was a live dispute. They heard it. They briefed it. They were writing their opinions. They invested all this time and energy. And it's a really important set of questions to answer. Like, the democracy will be healthier for the court having weighed in in this way. And so they just decided to go ahead and do it. But that's not what they said. They made up a long set of much more kind of legalistic, technical-sounding arguments. And I just don't buy that part of it at all. Have they ever done that before? Never, John. No, they do have been doing this. I mean, in some ways, courts and the Supreme Court, you can pick lots of examples of this. And these preliminary questions, whether parties have standing, whether the case is moot, whether it's ripe, whether there's jurisdiction, nobody is really interested in that. If you're making up those rules as you go along, then it creates... And also... When courts decide questions that it doesn't look like they really procedurally should be deciding, they're actually taking more power unto themselves, right? right? Because if there's no justiciable dispute, no dispute in which you can see, like, oh, we're redressing this injury from these people, then what are you doing? You're just issuing an advisory opinion. That's not how the American judicial system is supposed to work. And doesn't it undermine every other time you say something is moot? Because before, mootness was not something that you took into account. Yeah, it makes it seem very pick and choose. Anyway. The, the, so, Emily, there was the Indian child welfare case, which was decided in a kind of liberally direction. There was the Alabama redistricting voting rights case. Um, there was Harper v. Moore, this case. There's a case sort of respecting the Biden administration's authority over immigration. So is is Chief Justice Roberts a liberal now? Is that what's happened? Is is Justice Kavanaugh actually, you know, sort of the you know, the 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 best friend of Justice Sotomayor, their and ideological the, buddies? And does the Louisiana case go into the list that David yeah, the Louisiana case allows Louis- people in Louisiana to challenge redistricting in Louisiana for being unfair to um, black and Hispanic voters, like the Alabama case. And so, yes, it's part of the pot. So, no, I don't think John Roberts is a secret liberal or has really changed his orientation at all. Um, I think he and Justice Kavanaugh, and to some extent Justice Barrett, are picking their battles, right? I mean... The cases that have not come down yet are about the Biden administration's power to cancel um, federal loan repayment, student loans. Don't have it. They don't get it. Right. We'll see. Affirmative action. You already no called that. that one. Um, whether you know religious liberty, whether religious objections to serving same-sex couples in Colorado is like something. Important. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Right. So, and then there's some of, there are a couple others. Um, And so, one thing that Roberts has really been pretty amazing at, with maybe the exception of last year, is creating the impression that everybody's winning and losing at the Supreme Court. That no matter your partisan position, the team you're rooting for, the ideological result, you're going to get some wins. And this term so far has been shaping up in this direction. And if what you're concerned about is the country sees the court as a radical force Mm -hmm. that is drastically out of step with the American public, this is a really important development. And it does seem like Roberts has allies because he's no longer the swing fifth vote. He has to also get at least Kavanaugh, if not Barrett on board. And that's what's happening. So these decisions are about institutional repair, 
I think so. I mean, sometimes I think, why do they care about this? Because they all have this power no matter what, pretty much, right? Like the nine of them are not going to be dethroned tomorrow because people get really angry with them. And yet, I think there is this sense that it's vital to the institution to have some sense of the American public having some faith in it. And the fact that the court's public approval ratings are at its lowest ebb since Gallup started take, keeping track and the ethics problems they're having with Justice Thomas and now Justice Alito, all of that is pushing in a direction that you would want to try to compensate for. And I think, and I also think you can make a principled set of distinctions about, for example, the Voting Rights Act cases, like why Roberts, even though he opposed, when he was a Justice Department official, he didn't want this interpretation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but that was when he was in a political role. Congress disagreed. Now he's supposed to be enforcing the law. He saw Section 5 differently in Shelby County. Certainly there's like a conflict in results there, but maybe he just thinks these two parts of the Voting Rights Act are different because of the way Congress treated them, right? You can come up with a way to get them. Right. 25% of the country, by the way, has a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. How much? Yeah, what do you think about, yeah. <laughs> there that are that number was closer to 60 in the mid-80s. Right. So, I mean, to that point, Emily, liberals, or John, too, actually, liberals have put so much of their... They've gotten so much out of the court from like the 50s through the 90s. They got so much out of the Supreme Court. And now they find themselves on the wrong side of it. Uh, Do you think their response should be, let's do what the conservatives did. Let's play the long game. Let's like, you know, repack the court system, the federal court system with liberals over, over a generation? Or do you think it should be to work to build non-legal sources of power. I bet half this audience is lawyers who work on on legal issues relating to the government, and liberals are so invested in legalism, but maybe there should be a, a, an abandonment of that and a, using other kinds of political power to make change. Well, you're channeling former President Obama right now, who really, Ooh. yes, <laughs> who really believed and presumably believes in community-based, voting-based, more sort of directly democratic means of social change, maybe because he was a community organizer. And, um, And there is a whole political science that supports this idea that if you really want to make deep-seated change, you have to make sure that it's, that the, the polity is part of it and has participated in it and believes in it. And you can't just leave it to judges who are the most removed branch for various reasons, right? Good reasons from the democracy. And there's a really good example of this in same-sex marriage where there is a combination of democratic measures, state court measures, then lower federal court decisions, and they all took turns and played a role, and the polls shifted, and then the Supreme Court weighs in in Obergefell. And that's a real contrast to Roe, where you have a kind of national federalized constitutional right to abortion when the states are just starting to change their criminal laws um, that maybe preempts this democratic discussion and now is happening with abortion. And it's possible that if you're someone who believes in abortion access, that eventually will land in a more deeply rooted place. However, we may not land there for the entire country. And so there always are trade-offs. And the one reason why advocates on both the right and the left care so much about the court is that with one ruling, they can make such dramatic national change. 
And also there's lots of other stuff to fight about other than just what gets to the Supreme Court. Think about all the courts that knocked back the 60 frivolous lawsuits about the last election. None of those got to the Supreme Court. And fortunately, there were people who were trained enough in the law uh, on both sides of the ideological spectrum who were sufficiently talented in the use, talented in the use of reason to knock back the foolishness. So keep your job, all of you, you lawyers. So Emily, one of the things I love asking you about is you're, you're so uh, prophetic. You're like the oracle at Delphi. Um, I never make any corrections. So, but you, in this particular way, you do. I periodically ask you, like, what are the big issues, the kind of legal themes that are coming up, and you, you identified, of course, the the challenge to Roe that was going to come a couple of years ago. I think you you identified that the independent state legislature case was going to come and be a big deal. So, what, so what was the next set of major thematic legal issues that the Supreme Court is going to deal with in the next term or two? Well, I think that we're in the middle of a lot of more litigation about abortion and guns and affirmative action. So there's the Mifepristone case bubbling through the courts right now. That is like an enormous issue for um, access to the abortion pills and the authority of the Food and Drug Administration. Um, then there, this affirmative action ruling, I think, is going to open a lot of questions about race-neutral alternatives for admissions that aren't settled. And there are these questions about, you know, can states still keep guns out of the hands of people with nonviolent convictions? What about a restraining order for domestic violence? Those are coming. And then there's just technology. I mean, in the same way that um, Congress and state legislatures are going to be forced to confront AI, so is the Supreme Court in some way, shape, or form. And they've gotten pretty good, the justices, at being like, we're not the best at this whole technology internet thing. Like, now they just sort of say that, and then they ask their slightly clueless questions. But (laughs) it can't be the best forum for resolving that. So I'm sort of wondering how that's going to work. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. 
Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Since the uh, cavalcade of indictments began this spring, Donald Trump's poll numbers with Republican voters have jumped. So he now has a pretty clear majority, or about a majority, that wants him to be their presidential nominee. Ron DeSantis has failed to ignite. He's dropped almost 10 points to Trump in the past couple of months. And none of the, the parade of other Republican candidates has broken out at all. All of them are polling in the low single digits, if they can even be polled at all. So, John, let's start with DeSantis, who, I, I mean, I was sort of, I was sure at this point that he was, he was going to be the, the de facto nominee, and clearly that is not the case. Why, what's his strategy? Why is he doing so poorly so far? Well, I think he's doing poorly... I mean, it's a very weird environment. You have a front runner. I mean, it's, it's very hard to talk about this race like we're talking about a normal race. It's like one candidate does, is the front runner, and then there's the challenger. But we're talking about, it's like watching a chess match and saying, well, the king takes rook, and that's happening. But the chess match is taking place on the Titanic. You mean the deck is going like Yes. I mean, well, in, in, in a sense, yes. But on the other hand, the, the, deck, of, the deck is actually quite straight. I mean, by, by, uh, the Titanic metaphor is that you have a twice indicted, twice impeached frontrunner of a party who has proved himself by the judgment of the three most senior people in the party, McConnell, McCarthy, and Pence, judged himself to be unfit for the job he aspires to, based on his actions on January 6th. McCarthy would like to take back that he yes. never said that. That's true, but the, he's on the record. Um, and, um, and he's on the record at the moment of his most uh, acute personal fear, which was the day that they were coming to get him. Uh, that he expressed this uh, view that the president was responsible not just for and this is an important thing about what McCarthy said, was not just that he was responsible for the events of January 6th, but that he was responsible for doing things to repair that he then never did. Okay, that person is winning it going away. That's the weird thing. So, so when you say, like, what's the challenge you're not doing to affect the front guy? Well, he's running in this crazy race where um, the indictment took the oxygen um, away from a chance for these alternative candidates to play. And then what, how do you make inroads as a challenger? You pick issues that you try to break open either as issues themselves where there's a constituency that cares, abortion would be one of them, or they become symbolic issues that you can then break down the other person. None of those seem to work for, uh, with uh, former President Trump. I mean, the polling, even people who don't agree with him on all these qualities, nevertheless want, uh, Republican primary voters, nevertheless want him to be um, the nominee. I mean, we haven't polled whether, but I swear if you asked people who held the view that they do not want a president named Donald, Donald Trump would lead that group by 60-30. I mean, he, he just has this um, impervious, they think he should still be the nominee if he's convicted. So how do you run against that? And also, uh, DeSantis has not shown himself to be a nimble, um, talented politician. Now... But it, that's not, you know, 
people may forget that there was a period where Barack Obama was considered a total failure when he first launched as a candidate. And it was like, oh, well, you know, everybody thought he had promised and he gave the 2004 speech and, it, and then he patiently did the work in Iowa and then, of course, he became um, the, the president that he became. So it's, under the normal circumstances, it is possible for a candidate to do the patient work in the states, but we're not in normal circumstances. Huh. I just, so I just don't understand how you can beat Donald Trump without challenging the idea that he should be the president and that it is bad to be under indictment and worse to be convicted. Well, and DeSantis had um, a very strong argument, which was basically, I've gotten stuff done, people are flocking to my state, and I have the ability to do things, whereas this, the, the front runner didn't do any of the stuff that he could, wanted to do, and, and he's a chaos agent. And, and that is a, that, if you're going to make an argument, I mean, you can, so Christie's making a similar argument, but Christie's not the sitting governor of a very popular Republican state. DeSantis has a good hand. And look at this list of very conservative, right. ultra-conservative accomplishments of mine. A six-week abortion ban. I'm having this huge fight with Disney. I think that's a weird one. Yeah, it is a weird one. You know, all of his, well, still, no. like, all the parental rights, critical race. Like, there's a list of these things that were designed to appeal to the Republican primary voter and are not breaking through. So that's what makes me think he, it has to turn into an attack on Trump. Yeah. But the thing is, they, I mean, there's not a lot of appetite for attacks on Trump. One of the things we see in the polling is that candidates who have attacked Trump fall in stature. Um, that you have to find a way, this is again how weird it is, you have to find a way to tear down the front runner in a race where tearing down the front runner is the worst thing you could do. Do you, I mean, do you think, John, that if there were only one, if it was only like Liz Cheney, she was the only candidate, she was running in the anti-Trump lane, there was just that one person doing it, that that person would be effective? Is it, if it, is, if it, was, only Dick, if it was only Liz Cheney, or, he'd was, be polling at 65. Or, or it's the only, all right, if it was only Chris Christie, if, it, if, it, if there weren't 12 of them I, doing I, it, would they be doing better or they're doing... Or worse. Well, two ways to look at this. If you look at our polling, CBS survey, Anthony Salvanto asked, um, do you want a candidate, if it's not Donald Trump, do you want somebody like Trump? And three quarters of Republican voters said yes. So that means the lane of not Trump is only a quarter of the Republican primary voters. Another way to do it is 538 said, basically, if you take the DeSantis voter and the Trump voter and you assume that they want the same kinds of qualities, what's left? And that lane's only about a quarter. So... Whomever else you want is, you know, a quarter, maybe a little bit more, um, but that's not enough to get the whole bundle. I feel like the conundrum that you've laid out just makes me think they're all going to lose to him no matter what. It doesn't matter what crimes he's indicted for, how these legal cases against him go. I, it's, I, I, we're supposed to imagine that the dynamic is still up for grabs and it's way too far out to know, but it feels, I, I just don't see how they break that lock. I don't either. And the thing is, we, a, a lot of us made mistakes at various times in the 2015 and 2016 period by saying, um, you know, for example, in South Carolina, there's no way somebody with the personal record and the, the, 
um, kind of distant relationship with Christianity that Donald Trump had will do well in a state where 70% of the primary voters are evangelicals and who voted overwhelmingly for George W. Bush when he actively says during a debate that George W. Bush should have been impeached for Iran. Like, that's likely, surely that will hurt him in South Carolina. Uh Uh-uh. So you could be as wrong. What is, what is everybody certain about, including me, that he's got this powerful lock over the party? So what is the way in which, let's stipulate that we're always wrong. Dewey defeats Truman, et cetera. <laughs> so how could we be wrong? Right, Run in that what experiment. way? Where's yeah. the path for yeah. wrong? How could we be wrong? And I haven't Found quite it. figured that out. I have a familiarity <laughs> with being wrong, and so it is not foreign to me, but... Um, but I don't know how you do it. Another thing that's interesting about these numbers, you look at the, uh, the most recent indictment. One of the things that was argued in 2016 is that people said, well, you know, if, if voters just knew about Donald Trump, there's no way he would have won. And my feeling was always, you know, what did people know about him, basically? They knew about the Access Hollywood tape. They knew about the behavior they had seen in front of them, and they voted for him anyway. If you look at the indictment, the saturation, everybody knows about the indictment, and they know what he was indicted for, and they think a majority of voters, and even a big number of Republicans, think that it was a very bad thing for him to have this stuff, and his numbers went up. It's not lack of knowledge about what Donald Trump has been up to that, um, that, is, that, that would change his standing. So if you were DeSantis' campaign manager, or maybe you would pick another candidate, what would you do? Um... I would, if I were to stand as a campaign manager, they seem to have access to $200 million, and I would try to get like a 10% deal on that. That would be my, <laughs> would that would be my number do, one. What would you do to one. defeat Donald Trump? You want to win the Republican primary. Who's your horse, and what do you, how do they run the race? I have no idea. I mean, I, DeSantis is now kind of running the race I thought he should run, which is running on this competence, and I'm, I'm not a chaos agent, and I can do all these things, and yet it is, as John says, it is... It makes no difference. It is, Trump is immune to it. And I mean, I sort of like wonder if I'm living in some kind of simulation or something at this point. I don't know. What would you do? I think I would try to like blow up conservative media because I feel like that's so much of the What do you mean blow it up? Change it in some way, like invest a huge amount in some kind. I mean, you can't do that as the candidate. And I don't know what you do as a candidate. Well, but think about, sorry to interrupt, but think about what happened with the 2020 election. Remember all the things that were in the Fox filings. They weren't reacting. They were reacting to the voters who were all like, no, no, the election was stolen. And they're like, no, it wasn't. But so in other words. Yes. Like I'm imagining that Fox is creating the dynamic, but actually it's a feedback loop at this point. I mean, I I think this is hopeless, but actually when when I think about what's wrong with American life and no offense to all of you here, I think it's like that people are too interested and too invested in politics and that there is too much of their group identity, too much of their I- tribal identity is wrapped up in politics. And if people had enough, if politics was just less relevant to people, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't just like, they wouldn't invest their ego and invest their sense of self in Trump and Trump's success and feel like Trump, like Trump had to win to sort of vindicate some sense of tribal identity they have. They would just like go, oh, you know, I'm going to go fishing now and Focus on, like, fishing. uh, Newt Gingrich, who I know many people here love dearly, um, (laughs) used to say when he was running for president, he said, when I'm president, you won't hear from me for weeks. 
And Michael Bennett used to say the same thing in his when he ran briefly for president. Is uh, I mean, Joe Biden is kind of pulling this. Yeah, off, Joe Biden really. does. He does. Yeah. I had to. It's not, our, not working out so well for him, given his uh, approval ratings. So okay, so we have no advice for but that's probably, the campaigns except probably, to say that people shouldn't care about politics anymore. Even though we do a politics podcast that we would prefer that some people listen to. Well, we'll close, John, with one this one last thing. So we have, we're now about to enter kind of the campaign season. Trump's campaign has not been visible in the way it was visible in 2016. It's much less present in the culture. Um, what what should we be looking out for as a possible change in the dynamic? Uh, well, the biggest thing is probably a debate. But when you say it's not as present in the culture. I think I know what you mean, but I mean, the indictment definitely got a lot of coverage. Isn't that because the media is trying and, not to give it wall-to-wall coverage? Yeah, it? and also, but I think he, his rallies aren't the same kind of carnival, circus, everyone has to be there, there are lines a day long to get in. And people didn't protest the indictment the way there was some expectation of. Like, not en masse. Is that not true? Uh, well, they were, I don't know, they, was, they were loud, but I don't know. I mean, I just, I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking is if we conceive of the campaign differently... A rally and its noise that's generated has an effect on the campaign, but wall-to-wall coverage of an indictment might be worth, apparently, according to the polls. Earned media. It might be, yeah. yeah. And, and it's important, I think this is implicit in what you said, or maybe even said it explicitly, is partially also it's a little tough to pull out. And we, we know the indictment certainly didn't hurt him among Republican primary voters. It may also be true that, that he was being indicted um, as DeSantis was not fulfilling his promise. Yeah, so so he may be he may be benefiting from the indictment a little bit, but he may also be benefiting from just DeSantis no you know losing share in the in the vote. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you are sucking down that beer, what are you gonna be chattering about? So my chatter is starts on December seventh, eighteen fifty-three. You did this one. You've always music too. You always use that date. Are you accusing me of being formulaic? (laughs) When the railroad workers of the Buffalo and State Line started to put four-foot, ten-inch gauge track on this uh, inside the city lines of Erie, Pennsylvania, and when they started doing this, a cannon shot went off, and the people of Erie, Pennsylvania gathered around the town square. Some of the men were dressed as women, which, for which reason I will explain to you shortly. There were a series of, uh, of um, uh, strong speeches given, a lot of gesticulations, and then the whole damn crowd followed the mayor riding on a swayback horse down State Street when they met up with the rail workers and ripped the rail, uh, railway ties out of the ground. The men dressed as women did, this, uh, did so in order to sneak up to the railway workers, and they tore, the, they tore up the tracks. Why did they do this? As you all know, it was very hard to get through Pennsylvania when you were moving from east to west in 1853. You could drive, you could get from New York to Buffalo in 20 hours and never change a train. But when you went through Erie, Pennsylvania, if you're going from the eastern side of the state to the western side of the state, you had to drive, you had to go on three different trains. Why did you have to go on three different trains? Because they used different gauges on the tracks. The gauges is the distance between the two rails. Now, why did, why was this a pain? Well, it was great for Erie because everybody had to get off of one train in Erie and then get on another train. Meanwhile, they could buy some snacks. Yes, precisely. What kind of snacks did they buy? They bought peanuts and pies. 
That's I, good. There were, That's there so were much so better than the Acela that I was were, on this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the Wi-Fi was better than the Acela. Oh my God, too. don't get me started. Yeah. So boring. Um, so that's exactly right. Erie was required this crazy system of what was called brakes in the in the railway system. But you know, basically, the people who were transporting the woolens and the produce and the sorghum and whatever the hell else they were trying to get from east to west did not like this. So the big railroad interests said, "Forget it. We're going to put a one straight rail line right across this part of Pennsylvania." And the people of Erie did not like that. So they petitioned their lawmakers and the Pennsylvania state passed a law, said, no, the gauge system of Pennsylvania has to retain, and you have to have these different gauges, three, t- three ways through Pennsylvania. Sorry, guys. The railroad interests, who had the money, lobbied, got that knocked back. Then the railroad interests did something very smart, which is the contractors who'd built the railway, these three different railways, one of the main ones, the contractors had these bonds, and so the rich railway, railroad interests just said, okay, we'll just buy the bonds. So they started to own the railway. They started to lay down the tracks, and the good people of, of um, Erie shot off the cannon, grouped together, went down, tore up the tracks. So why does this matter? Well, if they'd been able to run a train right past Erie... No more eerie, right? In fact, this later must have happened. This later, in fact, did happen. Um, but not before the gauge war, which is what it's come to be known as, took place. And essentially what ended up happening is they're um, in Harbor Creek, which is down the street, from, well, seven miles away from Erie, they got into this as well. And so they started to tear up the tracks and burn down the railway bridges. Now... If, you, if the train stops in Harger Creek and you have to go pick up the train in Erie, that's about seven and a half miles. So people had to walk because all the train track in the middle was destroyed. So they had to walk. And one of the people who had to walk um, was Horace Greeley, the famous, famous newspaper man from New York. And he said, and he started to fulminate in the pages of um, the paper about, uh, about Erie, which was known at this point as the Shylock State because they asked for a pound of flesh um, for people traveling through. And he, he in one editorial said he hopes that travelers avoid Erie until the grass shall grow in their streets until her pie men in disrepair shall move away to some other city not inhabited by fools and ruffians. Again, with the pies and the peanuts, this also is referred to as the peanut war because of the... so. This continues to go along until another... They keep tearing up the tracks. Finally, on the 27th of December in in, uh, 1853, the citizens go to do this again, and it turns out the train that's coming is filled with ruffians themselves, with pickaxes and shovels, and there's a massive fight. Somebody gets shot, um, and the entire town of Erie basically splits um, over this for two more months until finally they are able to work out an agreement as you say, it basically they promise to send federal troops if they don't work this out. Um, and so the gauge war of Erie, Pennsylvania is one of the un- unknown stories. And finally, where is it? Um, but for the locals, a man who had been through the Erie War and later served in the Union Army thought the Civil War pronounced the Erie War the much more exciting of the two. <laughs> so at least they had good fun in Erie tearing up their tracks and blowing up their bridges. My, my memory of... Uh, there's this town in Pennsylvania, Breezewood, Pennsylvania, which is like off the Pennsylvania Turnpike, where you have to stop. You have to spend like 
endless time like schlepping your way in through breezewood instead of just neatly getting on a highway. Uh, they they are masters of that, Emily Bazelon. No, no, I refuse to be blamed for this. I explained to you that Philadelphia is actually in New Jersey, and we are not responsible for things in the west of the state. It's What's different. your chatter, Emily? My chatter is about another Supreme Court decision this week that is about online threats. So a guy named Billy Counterman in Colorado, it seems like got obsessed with this uh, local singer and performer and sent her hundreds of messages on Facebook. Some of them were innocent. Some of them were things like, oh, are you driving that white Jeep? And some of them said things like, die. So she was understandably distressed by this, went to the police. He was charged under an online stalking statute, but the 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 way the case came to the Supreme Court, it was only about this online evidence. And so then the question becomes, if the evidence of stalking is a true is comes under a true threat, what kind of state of mind do you care about for the threat? So three choices. You could only care about the effect that you're having on the reasonable listener. Not this particular songwriter, but if if you're receiving all these messages, do you feel threatened? Door number two is you want evidence that someone who's making the threat intends to cause emotional disturbance and harm. So then you would need, like, I set out to really disturb this person. The Supreme Court chose neither of those options. They chose the middle door number two where they said, we care about the state of mind of the defendant, but we're only going to say they had to be, the state has to show that they were reckless, that they were disregarding the effect they were having in a reckless kind of injudicious way. And so the idea is like we still care about how you're thinking when you make the threat, but we're going to grab recklessness from libel law because it's not as hard to prove as intentional threat making, but it also leaves some space that the court, the Justice Kagan who wrote the majority decision said is going to protect us from chilling too much speech. So there is some concern the court is showing here from the idea that people could get worried that they might be misinterpreted for making a threat. And so they would swallow their words in her words. Mm-hmm. And we, because we care so much about the First Amendment and free speech rights, we're going to try to make sure that doesn't happen by adopting this recklessness standard. That was a decision. You seem very skeptical. No, I mean, but it just seemed like some of the stuff he wrote was kind of harsh. Yeah. So, and and it was pretty obviously threatening. It wasn't like his position on Marbury versus Madison. Right. And you can imagine, I think most of us experience the story through the person receiving the threats. And we don't care that much about the state of mind of the other person as long as you have like a reasonable reaction as opposed to a purely, yeah. I mean, there was another, I think, feminist concern here. Um, I was emailing with Genevieve Lackier, who's a law professor. And one of the issues here is that um, usually, Genevieve was explaining to me, courts have talked about Uh, stalking cases being less concerned about the First Amendment because even though the evidence of the stalking is is verbal or words, it's still stalking. And so her concern is that the Supreme Court has kind of muddled things here and we're going to end up in a world in which um, whenever you have stalking allegations, prosecutors are going to think and juries and judges are going to think that you have to prove recklessness when really stalking is a form of conduct, not speech, and that's how we should understand it. So it'll be interesting to see 
What happens next? Counterman's conviction got thrown out. The yeah. state has to start over again and prove that he was reckless. And if that becomes a higher standard, are we going to see fewer stalking prosecutions because the bar goes up? My chatter is I want to talk about a, a weird new phenomenon. Or it might not be a new phenomenon that I have seen in American culture. And it starts with I went to the Atlantis last week, which is the Atlantis, if you're a Washingtonian, as I am, is this new club that's been created next to the 930 Club. And what it is, is a faithful recreation of the old 930 Club. And if you grew up in Washington, as I did in the 80s, it was an amazing, the old 930 Club was this amazing subterranean institution. John, you probably went there. Um, I went to my first concert there with my mother. In fact, we saw the Pogues. Um, And uh, it's just, it was a smelly, dank, underground place. And it's now been created and it's um, Recreated and it's wonderful, but it's airier. There's really good ventilation. You're not allowed to smoke. Uh, the beers cost ten times as much. And I saw Darius Rucker, and it was incredible. It was an amazing show. And then I was talking to some colleagues of mine at CityCast Denver about Casa Bonita. I don't know if any of you all know what Casa Bonita is. Yeah. Wow. A world where more people know what Casa Bonita is than the old 930 Club in DC is weird. But Casa Bonita is a Mexican restaurant in Denver. It's the first place I ever ate Mexican food when I was on a road trip in 1984. And it, it was, it's this kind of circus-like Mexican restaurant. It has cliff divers. It has, uh, it has incredible music. It has puppet shows. And the food is famously terrible. And what happened with uh, Casa Bonita is that it shut during pandemic or ran into deep financial troubles. And the guys from South Park bought it. Trey Parker and Matt Stone bought it and they have now just reopened it and it's glorious and the food is much better and it's well lit and it doesn't stink and it doesn't have all the health code violations. I should also note that the Atlantis, the new, the new 930 Club was built by Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters. And so Dave Grohl is like me, 53 years old. Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone is like me, 53 years old. Um, only also, 53-year-olds do these cool... Well, refer- yeah, so then I want to point to the, the movie Air, which I don't know if any of you saw the movie Air, which is this movie about the, the creation of the Air Jordan, and it's this very faithful uh, but glorified recreation of the mid-1980s by, by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who are 53 years old. And We're I taking think over the culture yeah, and making a, everyone live through the mid-80s. Live, live through the mid-80s. But better, but with better. good food. Yeah, but redo it... Take the thing that was existed when you were young, which you have nostalgia for, which was actually pretty shitty. The old 930 Club was kind of shitty. It smelled terrible. Whenever you'd go back, you'd leave it. You'd be like, it smells, my body smells terrible. And, and from Casa Bonita, the food was terrible. But, but to have this nostalgic recreation of it. And, and I was thinking, like, the baby boomers did a version of this. The baby boomers did a version of this. They invaded Iraq when they got older. <laughs> Like, sort of, let's recreate Afghanistan. And then they also, the Beetle, like, if you remember, there was this redone VW Beetle, this car that these baby boomers had had as kids, and then in the 90s, they got it again when they were in their mid-50s. And so I guess you reach this certain point if you were, like, a white guy of a certain type, where you have enough money, you're Dave Grohl, you're, you're Ben Affleck, you're, you're Matt Stone, Trey Parker, and you're, you think, well... Yeah, let's rebuild it. Let's, let's do, it, do again. it again. Let's I do mean, it again. Better a restaurant and a movie than a war, for sure. Yeah. Low I bar. So. That's our show for today. The, 
the the political gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. This live gabfest was pulled together by the imperturbable Alicia Montgomery, Katie Rayford. Thank you so much to our hosts here at Six and I Historic Synagogue in downtown DC. Thank you to Governor Westmore of the state of Maryland. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Please follow us on Twitter at Slate Gabfest. You can tweet chatter to us there or email your chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How are you? How are you doing? Our Slate Plus segment today is the Q&A uh, that our listeners here at Sixth and I have sent in, written in. So I'm going to start with one. Um, Emily, it's a question for you, which actually uh, I super identify with. Emily, I loved your interview with Peter Singer for Gabfest Reads. As a vegan, I'm curious whether his book inspired any changes in you. Love to all three of you. Oh, that's nice. That's yeah. a great question. Um, Explain what the interview is quickly. Yeah, so I interviewed Peter Singer about his book, Animal Liberation Now, which was originally published in 1975 and became a kind of Bible of the animal rights movement. And Peter is very committed to vegan diets as the primary way that humans can make the lives of animals better. And he has a deep philosophical argument about um, the importance of preventing animal suffering which he differentiates from death. Anyway, um, yeah, so I asked him a kind of self-interested and half-loaf sort of question about whether he thinks everyone has to be fully vegan or makes room for people who feel like they can't make that commitment and still want to participate in some way. And I actually wasn't sure what he was going to say. I thought maybe he was going to hold a kind of hard line because that's how you really get people committed, but he didn't. He said, he, he introduced me the term reducitarian, which I hadn't heard before, but his idea was like, well, maybe you go from being someone who eats meat frequently to very rarely eating meat. So I thought about that and I rarely eat meat. So I decided that I, uh oh, now I'm going to try to, ooh, I'm going to commit myself to this, that I'm really going to try to stop entirely eating Red meat and lamb. I hadn't realized how bad it is to eat sheep. Like, that really, I learned that reading this book. Um, but I don't yet personally feel ready to stop eating chicken and fish. So maybe that's the next step. And he certainly makes an argument for the suffering of chicken and fish, including, you know, most eggs, etc. But I'm not quite there yet. So that was the change that I was making. Now we're going to see if I stick to this. I, I thought it was such a great interview. It was such a great interview. And my girlfriend and I both listened to it. And we're totally reducitarian. All the way. All the way. Like, it's, it's made it just... I, it was the power of the podcast as a medium. I mean, it really is good. That's Thank a great you. interview. If you not listened to it, listen to it. Glad you liked it. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s. Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.